And so let's dig in. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench that uh, you can grab, and you can uh, grab that, turn to page 566, uh, and that will get you to Galatians 4, I believe. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one home. That's our gift. You would love for you to take that home and make it your own. All right, let's dig into Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is what Paul writes to the Galatians, and this is the voice of our God. So let's hear with reverence and joy. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary and principles, elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this unspeakable gift the gift of adoption in Christ Jesus, your son. We ask that this morning, um, while there's absolutely no way that we could plumb the the depths of what this text speaks to, would, would you give us a glimpse? And would you stir our hearts? Would you open our eyes now to behold wondrous things from your word Would you give us the the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you? Lord, would you um, help us by the power of that same spirit, the power of, of the spirit of your son, to rest in Christ, to rest in our adoption, to enjoy you, to know you, to 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 be known by you, and to enjoy being known by you. Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So in preparation for this morning, uh, I came across a story uh, about a a conversation between a dad and his son, uh, his son that his family had adopted from Kazakhstan. Uh, They were outside playing one day, and uh, evidently, this young boy was in that stage of childhood um, where the, the question why seems to continually and habitually roll off the tongue. Uh, some of you parents can identify with that. You're in that stage right now. Everything, uh, the response to everything is, is the question of why. And uh, as they were playing, the father said to his son, uh, I love you, son. And he said, his son said, why? Uh, which is a good question. And uh, the father responded with, because you're my son. 
And the son then asked, why? Why am I your son? And the father writes about how this question had struck him. He says, how do you answer that? Out of all the children in the world, why is he my son? I started thinking about all the factors that had come together from the timing to the qualifications to the ups and downs and the days my wife and I were wondering if we could really do this. I felt tears well up, though my son didn't even know what was going on. I was probably sorry that he had even asked the question why. He said, I look at this precious boy and told him, because we wanted you, buddy, we came to get you. That's why you're my son. And now really, that's the story of every adopted child, right? That's, that's the story of every adopted child. The parent wanted them, and so they went through all the ups and downs and the, the timing and the qualifications and the days where they wondered if they could even do this. Uh, and we've seen that same story here in our church family in recent days and, and weeks, haven't we? A, a member of our church family here, R- Rochelle, she's been uh, going through all of this, all the things that have had to, to come together, the, the meetings and the qualifications and the, uh, all the right timing and the ups and downs and, and all the rest of it. But right now she's actually in the process of bringing two little twin newborns home uh, from Kansas City and, and bringing them into her home as her own children to share her life with them and all that she has with them. And, and these stories, these stories of adoption, they, they move us and they stir us and they, they inspire us. They reveal, I, I think, a deep longing and desire within us that, that's really kind of hard to identify and communicate. But because truly, I, I think these stories of adoption, are, they, they are telling the story that is at the core of the universe, These stories are just little snapshots of the story that that all of history is telling, the story of adoption. God created us, men and women, to be his children, to, to know him and be known by him. But instead, we ran away to live as, as orphaned slaves. We rejected God's kindness and we rejected loving fellowship with him to live as dead, enslaved orphans. Each and every single one of us, we are all the, the prodigal son. But even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this running away, living as orphan slaves, we, we always long to hear that voice of acceptance and affection. And we, we search for it everywhere else. We search for it in the weak and worthless things of this world. We've sought satisfaction, the satisfaction that can only be found in God and everything but God. But in Christ, we hear that voice from the Father. In Christ, we find the satisfaction of knowing and being known by God the Father. That's, that's the story that history is telling, the story of God taking orphaned slaves and making us his children in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Our, our big idea for this morning is that in Christ, God has redeemed us from slavery and adopted us as his own sons. In Christ, God has redeemed us from slavery and adopted us as his own sons. And so we'll take a few moments to look at verses 1 to 3 to talk about our slavery. And then the majority of our time will be spent in verses 4 to 7 talking about our sonship. We'll talk about slavery and sonship. Uh, Verse 7 
Paul says, if a son, then an heir through God. And that word if is is telling, isn't it? it? It reveals that not everyone is a son. And in the first three verses of our passage here, Paul describes a little bit uh, uh, what it's like to not be in the family as God's adopted son, but rather what it's like to live as an orphan slave in the world. Before we're adopted by God as his children, we're, as Paul says here, we're enslaved. We're enslaved. Now, remember with me, he's been contrasting uh, the difference between living by law and living by grace for the Galatians, and particularly the difference between the old and, and the new covenant. And uh, he, he said things like Galatians 3.10, that, that, the, that the law curses us. And uh, in Galatians 3.22 to 23, that the law imprisons us. And he said in Galatians 3.25, that the law is, is like a guardian or a servant that's put in charge uh, of the child for the sake of learning and discipline. And now he says, I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's contrasting here, living as slaves and living as sons. And first, he he kind of takes an everyday example from the time and place in which they lived to illustrate what living under the law was like for the nation of Israel. In those days, it was very common for uh, a wealthy man to entrust the care of his heir to guardians. And the the word for guardian here is is not actually the same Greek word translated as guardian in in last week's text. These are two different things that he's talking about. But but now the eldest son uh, in, in this family, he would know that he is going to inherit the father's estate. But while he's a minor, he wouldn't own it yet. So the, the land belonged to him really by title, but uh, he, he did not actually possess any of it. And while he's a minor, he, he actually had about as much freedom as a common slave. He had no legal rights. He had no property rights. He was actually under a guardian himself, under a servant himself, and was disciplined and watched by this guardian. The guardian told him when to wake up and when to go to school and when to do homework and when to do his chores and what to wear and and when to go to bed. For, For all intents and purposes, he was a slave until he came of age. And Paul says in the same way, the nation of Israel lived under a period of enslavement until the coming of Jesus. And so enslavement is the word that Paul uses to describe the history of the nation of Israel. And, and not just their time in Egypt, like even after the Exodus, after they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, uh, they stayed enslaved to what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. Now, I should say this phrase has kind of puzzled uh, many readers of this letter to the Galatians. Because it's, it's, it's kind of an ambiguous word, and it's used several different times throughout the New Testament. It seems to be referring to different things each time it's used. And it's just overall, it's just ambig- it's an ambiguous word. Uh, it could possibly mean uh, that the law, are, are, it's the kind of ABCs of Christianity, and that the Galatians going back to the law was kind of like a doctor going back to kindergarten, Right? Um, so, so that's one possibility of, of what it can mean amongst others. Uh, but I, I think uh, that, that we actually get a good look into what it means here uh, when we read Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Uh, so I, 
I think context is key. So Paul, I think, kind of unpacks what he's referring to in the verses following our text in Galatians 4, 8 through 9, which we're going to look at in depth next week. Uh, But Paul writes this. He says, formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Okay, so he he seems to be saying, I, I think that these elementary principles are things within the created order that we worship and that we look to for salvation rather than worshiping the one true creator God and receiving the salvation he gives. In short, he he seems to be saying that the elementary principles of this world are the idols that we worship, created things that we worship as the creator God, things like like sex and drugs and and rock and roll, Uh, things like social or political power, even, even good things like marriage and family, things like jobs, honorable and honest vocations, work. We take these things and we worship them like slaves seeking a master. And then to make the connection here with what Paul is saying about the law, the law, as good and righteous and holy as it is, it's utterly powerless to deliver us from slavery, the slavery of idolatry. The law is powerless to redeem us. In fact, as we saw several weeks ago, the law just makes matters worse when we take the law and we use it to serve our our self-worship and our self-justification projects rather than using the law in its proper way, which is to drive us to Christ for redemption. And the majority of, of the history of the nation of Israel is a clear picture of this. They had the law, but they, but they ran to idols like Baal and, and worshipped them. They, they had the law, but many sought to justify themselves by the law. And besides a small amount, uh, amount of exceptions, they didn't let the law drive them to the promise made before the law came like they were supposed to. And the same is true of all of us, apart from the redeeming and adopting work of God, we're slaves, we're, we're enslaved to idols, we're, we're idol worshipers. You know, in, in the United States, we, we make a, a, a really big deal about being free, land of the free, right? But I, I, I would say the excessive consumerism would bear witness that we are enslaved to possessions, we're enslaved to comfort. Or, or the overworking and the underresting that's, that's so rampant in our day that, that would bear witness to the reality that we are slaves to work and, and slaves to what others think about us so that we can't just say no and take a day off. Or our culture's over-sexualization, the, the exploitation of women, the rampant addiction to pornography would all bear witness to the reality that, that our culture, by and large, is uh, enslaved to sex. We like to think we're free, but when you don't know God, you are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Enslavement to false gods that we treat like gods. That's, that's where we're all at apart from being adopted by the Father, enslaved. But thanks be to God, he has not left us as slaves to sin in the orphanage of the world. His plan all along was adoption. But when the fullness of time had come, picking it up in verse 4, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God saw fit to rescue us from enslavement and to rescue us into his family by adopting us as his own. And Paul lays out beautifully here how the, how the three persons of the Trinity are at work in this act of adoption. The Father, he takes us out of slavery and makes us his children, makes us his sons. The Father adopts us. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about justification and, and what it means. We've established, you know, we've gone back to over and over again our kind of summary definition of justification. Justification is God counting us righteous with the very righteousness of Christ by his grace alone, through our faith alone, in and because of Christ alone. He's declaring us righteous in Christ with the very righteousness of Christ. That's justification. And it's often said that justification is, is dealing with the, the legal aspect of our salvation. It answers the question of, of how can a righteous God forgive guilty rebels? So if God is, is the king, he is our judge, which he is. And if he's a good king, if he's a good judge, which he is, how on earth can he legally acquit us? How, how, justification answers that question. How can God legally acquit us? And now as we talk about adoption, adoption is a little bit of a different aspect of our salvation. They're connected because Christ is the source of them all, but we still want to make a distinction between the two. So when we talk about God adopting us, we're not just talking about like our legal status before God, although it speaks to that too, but we're talking about our relational status with God. In, in terms of how God views us relationally, like we're not just forgiven slaves, we, we are not just citizens that are good with the king. We are not just hired on as God's employees or, or hired on as his servants in his house who is the king. He, no, no, God says we are his children in whom he takes great pleasure. Okay, so he gives us, his inher- he gives us an inheritance. He, he gives us all that belongs to him. He, ex- he accepts us and he sets his affection on us. He adopts us and makes us his own. That's adoption and it's good news. So to illustrate what's taking place here, imagine with me that, that you're in a courtroom and uh, God is the king. He's the judge. He's seated in the seat of judge. And he's looking out over this courtroom. And you are standing there. And you, you are guilty. You, you are being tried. And you are guilty. And then you plead guilty. Because there's just no content. You are absolutely guilty. And there's no question about it. You are indeed guilty. And so you confess your guilt, you confess your numerous crimes, you confess your heart of rebellion, your sin, you confess that you've transgressed his good and perfect law and that you've done so because inwardly you are wicked beyond what you could even know. And that he would be just to eternally condemn you to everlasting torment in the lake of fire. That is what you deserve and he would be just to give you that. But you confess your guilt. And what happens next is the most surprising thing. God, the, the judge, the king, he says, 
okay, you are now forgiven and absolved. The perfect record of Jesus is now counted toward you. That's justification. But, but then he, he doesn't stop there. He then says, now you're coming home with me to be my child. Everything I have is yours. You're going to live forever. Everything I have is yours. You are welcomed into my home as my very own beloved child. That's what happens in our adoption. So now we no longer know God as just judge. We no longer just know God as king and Lord, but now we also get to know God as father. And then how does God do this? Paul tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's so much here that we couldn't possibly plumb the depths of it all. Uh, We're going to try to actually look at this again next week. Uh, But for now, Jesus Christ, he's the one that accomplishes all of this for us. And his life, death, and resurrection, he purchased us and redeemed us from slavery and shared his sonship before the Father with us. Now, like I've I've never adopted a child myself, um, and I know that most of you haven't, but there's something that's pretty well understood uh, by, by most about adoption. It's costly. It costs. It, it's costly financially. It's costly when it comes to the time and the energy. And there's mountains of paperwork and a ton of different processes and interviews and meetings that you have to go through. And, and to get a behind-the-scenes look at, at the adoption process, uh, much like the behind-the-scenes look at the process of pregnancy and birth, reveals that it's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the faint of heart. It's, it's costly. And the process that our triune God went through for our adoption, the process that God the Son went through for our adoption was even more extensive and expensive than all of that. He waited hundreds, even thousands of years, but at the right time, at the fullness of time, God pursued us and adopted us. And then look at how he pursued us and adopted us. He sent forth his own Son, And why did he do this? Because God, the Father, he is holy. And so he couldn't just take wicked rebels and welcome them into his home as his children without first dealing with their wickedness and their rebellion. And so Jesus, his son, was born of woman, born under the law. Jesus, the the only one who could rightly claim the status as God's blessed, holy, precious son, God's unique son, the only begotten one, the second person of the Holy Trinity, he was born under the law. And then he didn't stop there. He, He also died under the law. On the cross, he bore the curse of the law for us. We're so sinful and wicked that he had to become incarnate like us and had to be crucified to take on what we deserve, the curse of the law. And he did all of that so that, as verse 5 says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And now we are God's sons. We've been adopted by him into his family all because of Jesus, all because Jesus went to such great lengths to pay for the great cost of our adoption. And he spared no expense. 
the most precious, most valuable, most worthy, the eternal Son of God, gave himself entirely so that we could know the joy and life of being God's own children. And Paul goes on to say, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so what Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit takes that redeeming work of Jesus done in history and he applies it to us personally. Notice the the intensely personal language that Paul uses here. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So it's, it's like he's grabbing the Galatians by the face and making direct eye contact with them. And he's saying, you, yes, you are sons. You are no longer slaves. You are a son of God, the father, no longer slaves, but sons. And and not only that, but when the Spirit personally applies the adopting and redeeming work of God personally to us, our our hearts cry out in our adopted status, Abba, Father, which is like baby talk. That's the talk of a child with a status so assured, so affirmed. And of course, Abba Abba is, is the same word that Jesus uses to address God the Father during his earthly ministry. This is the Aramaic word for uh, similar to the word papa, it's a term of affection. It's a, it's a term of, of, of sweet and tender affection. And we've talked a lot about our, our union with Christ over the last month or so. How as the bride of Christ in our union with him, he shares with us all that he is and all that he has. Uh, which, by the way, um, you might be wondering why the word son is used so much. Uh, in this text, and, and if that's just leaving out women, why it's not saying daughters as well. But that's because in those days, daughters didn't have the same position, the same, uh, the same inheritance. They, they didn't receive the inheritance. They were not heirs uh, to the father's estate. And so when he's using the word son here very intentionally, he's saying you all, male or female, both have the status of being God's sons, his, his heirs. You both have that status before him. Um, but re- and really, if, if us guys are going to be called the bride of Christ, then you ladies can be called sons of God. Anyway, as, as Christ's bride, he shares all that he is and all that he has with us, including his status as son. He shares his sonship with us. And the way that we're united to Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit enters into a, a broken and sinful human being, he is, uh, he's applying the work of Christ to us, and he's giving us the fullness of Christ, all that Christ is, so that whatever is true of Jesus Christ, through our union with him, the Father now declares over us. So what that means is that if you're filled with the Spirit of Jesus— you are united with Jesus, you're you're one with Jesus. If you are one with him, then whatever he has and whatever he is, is yours also. You can boldly claim it as your own. So that means that Jesus, 
who is God's most deeply treasured, most deeply loved, most deeply known son has shared his sonship with you. And so if you trust in Christ, my friends, so if you trust in him, he has also shared this. You are deeply known, deeply loved, and deeply treasured by the God who rules over the entire universe. In the same way you are known, you are loved, you are treasured in the same way, with the same intensity, with the same depth that Christ is by God the Father. And in the same way that the Apostle Paul was grabbing the Galatians by the face and saying, you are sons. Yes, I'm talking to you. I want you to know right now, God is saying to you right now, you are his son. You are deeply known. You sitting on that bench right now, you are known, you are loved, you are treasured by the God who rules over everything. You are a son of the king. You are known, you are loved, you are treasured by the God of the universe. And it it, it even says in Zephaniah 3.17 that he sings over us. Like the father of a newborn child, he sings, beaming with affection and delight and pleasure. He sings over us. He's so overjoyed, so delighted in his children. He sings over us. And the Spirit, by living in us and crying out within us, Abba, Father, assures us. He was sent to assure us of this. That's part of what Paul is saying here, he's telling us about here, is that the Spirit, part of what the Spirit does is he works within us to convince us of this, to assure us of this, to, to give us a feeling sense of our adopted status, our, our, our status as sons of God. He, he works to give us a feeling sense of this. He's crying out within us. That's intensely feeling language. The Spirit works within us to give us a feeling sense, to assure us, to remind us, to convince us that it's all true. It's kind of like this little mantra that my daughter and I have. Uh, we, we do this every night before bed and randomly other times throughout the day. But I say to her, do you know that I love you? To which she knows what to say now. She says, so much. And so God the Father and his adopting of us and the redeeming work of his son, he's saying over us, do you know that I love you? And then he sends the spirit into our hearts so that we can respond with so much. We, we know that you love us so much. We have this internal witness of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the reality that you love us so much. As we close, I, I, I want to kind of tease out some implications of this for our life now. Through uh, prayer and, and conversation with you all, there are kind of three areas that have, have weighed on me as I've prepared this week and that I think our, our status as sons of God speaks to. There are three things. Um, the first is, is criticalness. Um, just a, a kind of spirit of being critical, just a, a general disposition of being critical that I think um, many of us struggle with. Critical over, over everything too. Critical over theology and behavior and taste or whatever. Just connecting all the dots of everything that's wrong with everything. And, and 
and I'm not advocating being mindless drones and, and just kind of not being discerning about um, certain things when it comes to theology and behavior and all of that. But I think for many of us, just this, this general disposition of being critical. We, we, we have this general disposition of connecting the dots of everything that's wrong. And being overly critical is totally in opposition to someone who, who has a feeling sense of sonship before God. Be, being overly critical is, is not uh, evidence of a heart that's resting in the acceptance and affection of God, the, the status of being sons. It's, it's, it's not evidence of a heart that is grateful and thankful. Rather, it's, or it's, it's evidence of an orphan mentality. It's evidence of, of a heart that's defensive, of a heart that feels as if uh, we have to prove our worth and our acceptableness because we're so insecure. That, that's the mindset of an orphan, not a son. It's not the mindset of a beloved child. And, you know, I should say too that like, I think I am probably the worst at this. I, I am the worst. I, I am just naturally bent toward being critical. And this is where I just go naturally, being critical. I'm cynical. I'm, I'm, I'm critical. My defenses are up. I always have to be right. I am most of the time. But I'm, I'm so overly critical of others. And I, I maybe. I worry that maybe there's an air of criticalness in our church because I've kind of set an example that's, a, that's just how we behave. And so if, if I have, I apologize. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your help and accountability. Because being overly critical is not behavior consistent with those who are resting in their adopted status before God. The second thing I think our, son, our sonship speaks to is... Um, pornography. And I know some in this room are currently struggling with pornography and addiction to pornography. We talked briefly earlier about slavery to the elementary principles of the world, sex being one of them, addiction to pornography being evidence of that. And for those struggling with this addiction, you, you might be tempted to, you, you might say, this is, this is it feels like, it looks like slavery in my life. I don't want to keep doing this, but I keep going back to the same situations over and over again. feels like slavery. keep going back to these dangerous situations over and over again. So if I could just say this to you this morning, if that's, if that's you, you are no longer a slave but a son. You're no longer a slave. You are a son, meaning you don't have to do that any longer. You don't have to go back to that. You're, you're not a slave, not to sin, not to pornography. You are a son of the king. You are free. The, the chains have been broken. Stop trying to drape them over yourselves and, and pretend, to be, pretend that you're still enslaved. The, the, the burden that was on your back, the, the straps have snapped and it's rolled off. You don't need to pick it back up again. You are free. You are freed from addiction and slavery. And even if you do give in to that wicked temptation to look at pornography, know this, you're still freely and fully accepted as a son of the living God. If you're in Christ, your status before God is Christ and it doesn't change. If you're in Christ, your status is Christ. His sonship, his righteousness is your 
status if you are in him. He bore the weight, the guilt, the punishment for that on the cross, and it's gone. It's in the grave. Christ paid fully for those sins committed before you were Christian and all of those that you have committed after you became a Christian. They are forgiven and gone, and you are accepted by God the Father. And he still sent the spirit. He sent the spirit of his son into your heart to cry, Abba, Father. So no, you are free. You are fully forgiven and accepted. You don't need to go back. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. The third is anxiety. Feel anxious. You're anxious about income. You're anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. You're anxious about finding the right job or, or, or whatever else. So is, is what's provided going to be enough? Are, are you anxious over any of these things or, or anything else at all? God feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the flowers of the field. And how much of how much more worth to him are his children than birds and grass. How much more precious are you in Christ to God the Father than plants and animals? Your, your heavenly Father is the King of the universe, you, and you are precious to Him. You are precious to the God who rules over everything. The entire cosmos is, is under His sovereign control and His sovereign authority, and He is present. He is near to you. He is present to you. You belong to Him, and He belongs to you in Christ. Seek Him first, and all these other things are going to be added to you. He, you are His child. He is your Father, and you are the apple of His eye. He loves you. He treasures you. What makes you think that He will not take care of you? So whether it's criticalness or pornography or anxiety or anything else, rest in this, that whatever Christ is and whatever Christ has, he shares with us. It's yours if you trust in him, if the spirit of, of Christ is in you. Whatever he has, whatever he is, is shared with you now. His righteousness, his sonship, his inheritance, his position, his status, his uh, spirit, his, his right to be heard by the Father when he prays, it's all yours. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer an orphan. You're a son of the living God, and he delights in you. Let's pray.